Um, we're going to dive into our uh, teaching series called The Spirituality of Everyday Life. And it's basically about <clears throat> how God is present and active in every part of our lives, not just the parts that we typically would consider to be spiritual. We kind of have this tendency, uh, dualism, to kind of divide life up into those parts that we would consider sacred um, and spiritual versus those that we would consider secular and unspiritual. And as we're in this series, kind of post-Easter, the idea is to recover a vision for the spirituality of everyday life, of all life, uh, of every part of us and every part of our existence. And the idea is that God made this world that we live in and God entered this world in Jesus and he died and he rose again in this world and we know that he's coming back to this world to make all things new and therefore everything matters. Not just kind of those classic things that we, we would consider to be spiritual or Christian or religious as good and important as they all are, but everything. Things like work, and things like friendship, and things like food, and things like sex, and gardening, and all the stuff that we do on a regular basis, right? So uh, this morning, we're going to talk about play. Play. I'm guessing most of us haven't ever heard a sermon on the theology of play, but I'm convinced that it's actually central to the life that we're called into as followers of Jesus. And so I'll start with a quote by a theologian named Brendan Mick, I don't know, how would you say that? Mick and Ernie or something like that? Um, somebody here's probably named that, right? No. But, uh, but think about this. He says that we are most fully human when we engage in those acts that are ends in themselves. Most fully human when you engage in those acts that are ends in themselves. And so what he's countering is this kind of utilitarian view of humanity that measures our worth, our value, our dignity, um, and our effectiveness based on what we're accomplishing. Right, So we are constantly asking ourselves and of others, why? Why do you do what you do? What purpose is this specific activity um, trying to bring about in your life? And what he does is counter it and go, no. The most fully human thing we can do, those kinds of things, are the things that aren't means to another end, but they are actually the end in and of themselves. Really interesting idea. So what's he talking about? What kinds of things are ends in and of themselves? Well, first, I would think about the relationships that are most central to our lives, right? Why do I love my wife and my kids? Because I love them, right? Why do I? Because I love them. The fulfillment of that act is in and of itself. Right? And the moment that I cease to, uh, the moment I begin seeking an end and seeing the people around me as a means to that end, then it ceases to be love, doesn't it? I start using people rather than loving them. So this is true of all of our most important relationships in life, family and friendships and community and all that. What other kinds of things is he talking about? The things that would make us most human because they serve no greater purpose than themselves. 
Well, I would say it's this broad category of all that stuff we do to have fun. All the stuff we do to have fun. Why do you have a party? To have a party, right? Why do we play games? Why do we eat good food and drink? Why do I have a beer? To have a beer, right? And so this whole long list of things that we would put in the category of fun, recreation, pleasure, he's affirming that we are most human when we're partaking in those activities. So things like singing, making music, dancing, celebrating, eating, drinking, creating and cultivating, whether that's brewing beer or restoring furniture or planting a garden or writing poems or whatever. And then this kind of broad category of recreation, which Bend is so good at and known for, right? Running and walking and paddleboarding and playing sports and hiking and camping and all that. Like, why do we do that stuff? We do it to do it because it's fun. Right? Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in life that's not work, right? Chores around the house, studying, even necessary things like sleeping and, and feeding ourselves. But I would say that doesn't qualify in our definition of play. The things that make these acts of play is that they are means to something else. They serve no strict purpose, even though there may be benefits, right? If you're active playing sports, whatever. There's health benefits and other things, but we're talking about those things that are ends in and of themselves, okay? And so this morning, as we lay out a theology of play, I'm basically going to ask, what does having fun have to do with following Jesus? And I'll start by acknowledging that Christians don't have a great reputation for this, do we? For many of us, we grew up in a Christian environment where having fun was greeted with much suspicion, right? And um, we were in these environments, whether it be church or home or youth group or something like that, that the idea of laughing, goofing off, just playing, um, somehow, somehow that, was, that seemed unspiritual. So Robert Johnston frames up the beginning of this thing like this, and it's a little harsh, but he says, from the time of Augustine down to the present era, Christians have often been suspicious of play. For Augustine, conversion to Christianity meant a conversion from a life of play. To him, even eating was sinful if done in a spirit of pleasure. Okay, I love Augustine, actually. I think he's made incredible contributions to our faith. He's a giant in church history. But there is this aspect that he lived this really fun life. And then he met Jesus. And from that point on, he kind of set this paradigm that to be a spiritual person, to be a holy person, to be a devoted follower of Jesus was to shun a life of play and to instead give ourselves to the things of God. And this way of thinking was fueled after his time by, in the modern period with the kind of uh, the, the rise of what we know now as the Protestant work ethic and all work, no play lifestyle has for, in a lot of faith traditions, become this kind of the evidence that God has truly redeemed a person. And so Christianity doesn't have a great reputation when it comes to being people that like to have a good time. In fact, Nietzsche once observed that Christians have no joy. As an atheist philosopher, that was one of his main charges against Christians. 
It's that they don't have any fun. And at one point, he even said that if he was ever going to come to believe in a God, he would only believe in a God who danced. And sadly, he was never able to locate such a God. Now, the passage that uh, Ben read for us this morning from Psalm 150 is a really interesting psalm. And uh, it's a song given to God's people instructing us on how we ought to respond to God's character and presence and work in the world. What should we do in light of the truth that we are given about God in Scripture? That he is great, that he is present, that he has intervened to redeem his people. What kind of response would that produce in people who actually believed it? And this psalm is written in the imperative. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then he gives this long list of ways that we can do that. Praise the Lord by singing and dancing. Praise the Lord with trumpets and harps and strings and cymbals. Kind of lists all the instruments in a band. Praise the Lord. Now let me ask you this. How do you get a musical instrument to make sound? Do you work it? You play it. You play it. You play drums. You play a violin. You play a trumpet. God is commanding his people to play, to make music, to celebrate, to sing, and to dance simply because he is and we are his. So I'm a drummer, or at least I used to be, and I spent a lot of time playing uh, on church worship bands um, in services like this, and I was... uh, kind of a punk rocker or something like that back in the day, and so there's really only one way to play drums, and that's loud. And uh, you can imagine, like, a 21-year-old Pete with blue hair and piercings and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you can't. Um, and I'm sitting there in a church service at First Baptist wherever, playing the drums the only way I know how. And oftentimes, very regularly, some sweet older brother or sister in the Lord would come up after the service and say, "Um, that was way too loud, my ears are ringing, (laughs) and uh, please don't do that anymore. And I never actually did this, but what I've always wanted to say is Psalm 150 verse 6, Praise the Lord with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. That's literally ringing in your ears, right? I'm just being biblical. And so, Cal or whoever's up here playing today, you have permission to hit hard. Now, it's so interesting, right? And first of all, what what we're learning about the act of worship, singing and praise and worship, is that this isn't for us. Our band isn't playing for you. Why are we doing this? Why are they making music? Why are they singing and leading us? It's to praise the Lord. It's for him. And apparently God likes clashing cymbals. He likes resounding noise. He likes music you can dance to. And God's people are commanded to play. 
And so I want to make the case this morning that followers of Jesus should be known as a playful people. A people who are so full of joy, living and experiencing the promise to life that Jesus called life and life to the full, or life abundantly, that it overflows out of us, not just in pious, traditional, religious forms, but actually in the act of play, of celebration, of making music, of dancing, of laughing, of partying really well. Robert Hodgkins, the theologian, says Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy because of our belief in resurrection. We ought to attract people to our faith quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. What a beautiful idea that the watching world would see this community of people who are so overcome by the idea that Jesus has defeated sin and death, risen again, promised to make all things new, and we, as the people of this story, are celebrating. And yes, we lament, and yes, we mourn, and yes, we acknowledge and engage in the issues of of brokenness and, and pain and death and injustice in our world, but we do it as those who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit that we would call joy, that we celebrate well, that we laugh hard, that we have fun. Henry Nouwen once said that Christians should always celebrate birthdays because birthdays are the time where we throw a party for someone simply because they exist. We throw other parties when somebody accomplishes something, when they graduate, or retire, or get married, or whatever it is, and that's great, but birthdays are a uniquely Christian opportunity to simply say, your life matters. You are here, and therefore, we celebrate you. I love that idea. I remember when Jen and I were engaged and about to be married, I uh, sat down with her dad, my future father-in-law, in a hot tub, and... Um, Incredibly self-conscious moment for me for multiple reasons. The first was bearing the tattoos that he, uh, he didn't know about. Um, but he's a great man, wonderful godly man, and uh, asked him at that point as a 23-year-old, whatever, um, got any advice, marriage advice? What would, you, what would you tell me as a guy who's about to get married? <laughs> His answer was, Make sure you always have fun together. And I was confused at the time because I'm like, no, that's, that's my question. Like, how, how do we make sure we have a, a good marriage and enjoy life together? And he goes, no, make sure you always have fun. And it's taken me now many years to actually realize what he meant. And he's saying that central to this intimate human relationship has to be this idea of celebration, fun, play. Because it's so easy to get distracted, right? It's so easy to focus on all the other things that make up life, and they're good things and necessary things, but when we spend our time doing work, family, raising kids, worrying about money, 
making plans, all that kind of stuff, it's easy to quit having fun. And I, I continue to think it was one of the best pieces of marriage advice I could extend to others as well. Make sure that you have a good time. So Christians should play. Christians should be known for having fun. Now, why? I'd like to argue that we are made in the image and likeness of a playful God. That this is why this is the most human thing we can do is pursue those things that are ends in and of themselves because that's a big part of who God is and what God's like. So I want to look at the three big movements of the story of God and show how each reveals a playful God, starting with creation, the creation of the universe. Turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 38. Job 38. A month or two ago, we looked at the book of Job as a story about suffering. And you'll remember that it starts with uh, Job losing everything that he has, right? His family, everything he owns is taken away from him. And he's left in this place of brokenness and mystery, trying to figure out what's going on and why God would allow such terrible tragedy to come to his life. And as the story goes on, Job has this group of friends that gather around and they're kind of philosophizing about what the nature of suffering and, and God's role in it all and they kind of have a whole bunch of bad advice for Job. And when you get to the, the 38th chapter, which is almost at the very end of this story, finally the Lord speaks. God had been silent up until this point and finally the Lord speaks. And what we know is that when God speaks to Job, he doesn't answer all of Job's questions about why pain and suffering exist in our world or in his life. Instead, what God does is ask Job a whole bunch of questions. And these questions are designed to reveal something about this God. So look like in verse 25 of Job 38. God speaking says, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass? And he goes on from there to talk about uh, the stars, the constellations up in the sky and God's command and control over all of them. He extends into chapter 39. Look, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their, their young thrive and grow in strong wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. And he goes on and on and on. This list of all of these elements of the natural world that God created and commands. And the idea is that the Bible reveals God as a creator from the very beginning, but also as a sustainer. 
And the idea is that he didn't just create a long time ago, but he continues to create. He continues to invest in the created world, in the plants and the stars and the animals. Even in verse 25 where we started, where he waters a land where no one lives. God isn't utilitarian in his creation. Why would you water a land where no one lives? Why would you make it rain in the desert? Because he likes to. Because he wants to. Why did God create these millions and millions of unique, beautiful, vibrant species of plants and animals that make up our world? Because he likes it. Listen to this poem by Annie Dillard. I love what she does here. This is from her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. The creator goes off on one wild, specific tangent after another, or millions simultaneously, with an exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted, and with an abandoned energy sprung from an unfathomable font. What's going on here? The point of the dragonfly's terrible lip, the giant water bug, bird song, or the beautiful dazzle and flash of sunlighted minnows, is not that it all fits together like clockwork, for it doesn't particularly not even inside the goldfish bowl, but that it all flows so freely wild, like the creek, that it all surges in such free, fringed tangle. Freedom is the world's water and weather, the world's nourishment freely given, its soil and sap, and the creator loves pizzazz. I love that line. If God had a hobby, what would it be? Creation. Creation. The creator loves pizzazz. He loves making life. He loves designing beautiful things simply because they're beautiful. And so in God, as creator, we have a picture of a God who likes to play, who isn't strictly utilitarian in his work in the world but playfully, creatively calls forth beauty and design and fun, even when we can see no apparent reason for it. And so when we play, when we sing, when we make music, when we have fun, we are emulating the actions of a playful, creative God who didn't create the universe out of necessity or utility, but simply because he enjoys creating and playing. So first, creation. Secondly, let's talk about the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, when God enters into our world, comes into human history in the person of Jesus. What we know is that among the many things that Jesus' life and ministry and work accomplished, at the top of the list is that Jesus is here to reveal to us what God is really like. Because for many, many years, people had known that there is this creator God, but had come up with all kinds of strange and crazy and self-serving ideas about what that God is like. And Jesus shows up, as Paul would call the image of the invisible God, and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm here to show you what God is like. And so in the incarnation, we get a glimpse of the nature of God in the person of Jesus. Now let me ask you this. How many depictions of Jesus 
in art or movies or songs or whatever, have you come across where he sounds like a really fun, happy, joyful, playful guy? Not many, right? Maybe there's a few out there. But many of the depictions of Christ, of course, depict his suffering and his death, which we understand to be a horrible part of his reality, but also incredibly comforting as we get a picture of a God who suffers, a God who's with us in our suffering. And Jesus is called the suffering servant. But we also have all these depictions of Jesus when he's teaching or discipling or, or doing his ministry that just sounds like, yeah, he's powerful and he's clearly wise and there's even hope and wisdom um, and salvation in him. But so many of the depictions, he doesn't look like that much fun. If you think about some of the old Jesus movies or whatever, doesn't look like a guy I'd want to hang out with. And that is not the picture in the Bible. That Yes, he's a suffering servant, but he's also one full of exploding joy. Jesus is referred to as a friend of sinners, as somebody who's frequently attending parties and people want him there. It's not just that he called the sinners his friends, it's that they called him their friend. If we're throwing a party, we better get Jesus here. Jesus was accused, do you remember this? He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, nobody just makes that accusation up out of nowhere. Apparently, his lifestyle of partying, celebrating, eating, and drinking gave him that reputation. Now, we know he was without sin, wasn't a glutton or drunkard, but he appeared to be, which is really my life goal as well, to be accused of without actually being those things. But isn't that an interesting picture of Jesus? That if you're observing his life, you go, man, that guy spends a lot of time hanging out at parties, eating and drinking. There's all these moments of playfulness, of humor in the life of Jesus. Ken spoke about this uh, several months ago, that we miss so much of the humor of Jesus. Some of it because the the distance between us and him in the stories, right? 2,000 years later, 5,000 miles away, some of the stuff just gets lost on us. But some of the humor of Jesus we miss because we don't even know to be looking for it, right? Let me, let me show you this story. You know this story from Mark chapter six. And it's the story of Jesus walking on water. It says, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake And he, Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. You didn't laugh because you're not paying attention, and most of us aren't. But do you realize what's happening in this scene? There's this crazy storm, right? Wind, waves, blowing hard. These disciples are scared for their lives. Jesus comes walking out on the water. And what does it say? He was about to pass by them. He wasn't walking to the boat. He was just walking by. Hey, guys. (laughs) And he's clearly messing with them. 
Like he knows they are terrified for their lives. And instead of showing up as a hero, he's just strolling on the lake. He was about to pass by them. He was just going to keep on walking, right? The story goes on. Um, Where are we? Thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Now, obviously, they're amazed at his display of power over the natural world that he can walk on water, that he can talk to the weather, and it does what he says. But I think the greater context of their amazement is that this guy is so full of joy that even in a moment that we understand as a threat to our existence, even in a terrifying moment, that Jesus is playing. Jesus is having fun. He's messing with them. There's something so much deeper within him that's exploding out in the form of joy and playfulness. And so the picture that we have of God in Jesus is obviously very, very complex, multifaceted. But right there throughout the story is this joyful, playful God. And so as followers of this Jesus, those who would long to see the fruit of joy become visible in our character as well, we play. We have fun. We do things just to do them. Because play relativizes our over-seriousness towards life. It fills us up with this spirit of joy and delight that comes over into all aspects of our existence. That when we play, goof off, have fun, we are bearing the image of Christ. So creation, incarnation, finally, recreation. We know that one day Christ will return to this world. And he's promised to bring all of the kingdom of heaven with him and to cleanse this world of all injustice, of all hatred, of all greed, of all sickness, of all death, once and for all. And he will invite his people to reign and rule and enjoy life with him forever. The Old Testament prophets had glimpses of this vision of recreation. They were given just kind of momentarily, momentary sneak peeks into this new world that God was creating. And one of them, for example, in Zechariah chapter 8, talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he, one of the descriptions is the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what we often refer to as heaven will be like. A place of playfulness, a place of joy, a place where all of the horrible stuff about the world we know is done away with forever. Well, what does life look like then? It looks like a party. It looks like a celebration. Other biblical writers use images of a great feast to describe the new heavens and the new earth. 
This long table stacked with all of the best food and the choicest wine and the finest cuts of meat. Now, when you start talking about that kind of feast, it's no longer utilitarian. It's not like a bar where you take one bite and you get all your nutrients for the day. He's going, no, good food, pizzazz, a party, a table that you would want to sit at forever. The Bible uses all kinds of celebration imagery, of parades, of festivals, of parties and songs that describe what eternity will be like with our God. And so as followers of Jesus, we live here on earth as citizens of that kingdom. That is our true home, our true destiny. That is where human history is headed, as crazy as that sounds to say. That one day, one day everything will be made new. And that is where our citizenship belongs. But we live here now. And the call from Christ is to live as citizens of that kingdom here on earth. To live by its rules, to live by its reality. That our very shared life would be a display of the good news of what God is up to in the world. And so when we play, when we celebrate, when we laugh and dance and make music and have fun and do things for no reason other than to do them, we are actually reflecting the reality of heaven into the world where all drudgery and disease and decay and death will be left behind. When we throw a good party, we're giving a glimpse of that beautiful table. When we make great music, we're giving a glimpse of that eternal song. And so followers of Jesus play as a foreshadow, as a gift to the world, that there is hope. Yes, there's pain and death and brokenness everywhere we look, within us and all around us. But it doesn't name us or it doesn't own us. We belong to this king and his eternal kingdom. So let's give the world a glimpse of it. We play because we bear the image of a playful God who in creation, in incarnation, and in the promise of restoration reveals his heart of joy, his love of pizzazz, his desire for good music, loud music, lots of fun, eating and drinking and laughing forever. Okay, if I stopped there, I feel like we'd be in maybe a dangerous spot for some of us. Because Bend, Oregon isn't a place where you need to go out and tell people, make sure you play. <laughs> make sure you take time to have fun every once in a while. Make sure you get out and do something fun. For many of us, that's why we moved here. Right? If you go to the new ice rink over there, what does it say right in the center of the ice? Anybody remember? The slogan of Bend, play for life. <laughs> right? It's possible to take something like play in the same way we could take any of the other parts of everyday life. 
work or family or food or friendship or marriage or any of that stuff and take it from being a good thing designed to call us into greater life of God and elevate it to be an ultimate thing. Whenever you take anything and put it in God's place, even if it's a good thing, it now becomes an idol. And it becomes the thing we look to for what only God can be and do for us. And so for many in our culture, not just Bend, but all over the place, this idea of play, of fun, of recreation has become elevated to the ultimate thing to the thing I live for, to the thing that all of my resources, all of my time, all of my energy and investment goes towards. I need to have more fun. Right? And so when we talk about a theology of play, we're talking about play within its rightful place as a beautiful accent to a Christ-filled life but never taking the place of Christ in our life. And even when it comes to prioritizing, for those that are regularly tempted to leave behind the other com commitments and components of life in order to go play more, play more, play more. And so we're skipping church, and we're neglecting our family, and we're cutting off friendships, and it's maybe even affecting our work, or our finances, or something like that, when it starts damaging the other parts of your life, here's what I want to say. You're doing it wrong. And you're teaching your kids to do it wrong as well. So that's my first challenge, is don't elevate play to the place of God. And take a good thing and make it ultimate. Here's the second challenge. When I say play, I don't mean waste time in some of the ways that our culture invites us to do so. I mean actively celebrating, not uh, passively uh, removing ourselves, right? So when we're talking about those things that we do that serve no purpose, you could say, yeah, I watch four hours of Netflix tonight. You know why? To do it. I play six hours of video games a day. Right? I pack a, pack a bowl and watch Stranger Things for the third time. Like, yeah, I'm playing. No, you're not. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're not doing it right either, okay? That's all I'll say. <laughs> so most things involving a screen, for example, right? And most of those things that are just kind of the ways that we try to remove ourselves or numb ourselves or find escape, right? That's when we've crossed the line into something else as well. The vision of playfulness that we get in God is an engaged playfulness, a showing up to celebrate. And it doesn't have to be with others, but it oftentimes is. It's a, it's a celebration of who God is and the life that he's given us and our significance and security in him. So we're not numbing or escaping or hiding from the world, but rather we're engaging the world in the form of joyful celebration and playfulness. Do you get the distinction? All right. So don't overdo it and don't do it wrong. 
Now here's what's so cool, is that as we talk about becoming a playful people, becoming a joy-filled community that can actually set the bar high for a good party, for good music, for a good time, our motivation in all of this is that Christ has finished his work. And we get to play in response to the gospel. That if it's really true that Jesus has taken our sin and our shame and our guilt upon himself and we have been crucified and buried with him and raised from the dead with him and one day we will join him in new creation, if that's really true, if he's really done that, then it calls us forth into a joyful rest, into a sense of safety and security, the freedom to take a break from our striving, from our laboring, from our worrying, and to find rest for our souls, as we sang, and to simply be, to simply be, and to enjoy and to celebrate life with God. Towards the, book of, towards the beginning of the book of Hebrews, there's this conversation about how the Israelites, we know, missed out on the promised land for many generations, for many years, for a whole generation. And the reason that we're given in the, at the very end of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, tells us that the Israelites were not able to enter God's promised land, quote, because of their unbelief. And the idea is that God had prepared this wonderful, joyful, vibrant place for them. He had intended to, in, in some ways, recreate Eden for his people, calling them out of the desert and saying, come and enjoy the good life with me. And the author of Hebrews says, but they didn't get to go. And the reason was because of their unbelief. So a life of celebration, a life of fun, a life of laughing and creating and making music and partying well actually requires trust on our part. It actually requires us to place our entire faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Because if the gospel isn't true and Jesus hasn't accomplished what it says he's accomplished, then we've got no time to play. We better be working our tails off to get right with God. Or nothing matters at all. But if the gospel is true, and if we have eternal significance and security in our union with Jesus then that has to overflow in play, in joy, and in celebration. Let's not fall into the same trap as the Israelites. Have you ever considered play as an act of faith? Sometimes you don't feel like it. You don't want to. 
you're insecure or tired or self-conscious or lazy or whatever. And so you decide to disengage. But if the gospel's true, to trust Christ sometimes means joining the dance party. And if there isn't one, then it means starting it and inviting our community, our neighbors, and our watching world to join. And so we uh, now every Sunday are creating space after the teaching time to simply enjoy the presence of God together. When we talk about those things which serve no other purpose than doing it, those activities that aren't pursuit of a, a different ends, but they are the ends in and of themselves, something like enjoying the presence of God together is one of those things. Worshiping him. We've got the cymbals and the guitars and all that kind of stuff, playing and make music together. Celebrating. Simply being with him is central to this vision that the Bible gives. Praise the Lord. Enjoy God's presence. Sing and celebrate. And there's several ways that we invite you to engage during this time. The first is that if you would like to receive prayer, we've got members of our community that would love to pray for you. And back at the exit signs on either side of the auditorium, you can go back there and share about places in your life as much or as little as you'd like to. And they'd love to listen and to pray with you this morning. When we pray, we don't even pray to get anything from God. We pray to get God. It's a human, in some ways, playful activity. We also have the table set here for communion for those that would like to receive of that. And this also is not a means to an end. We're not doing this to get right with God or to earn good standing with God or to show people where we're at with God. The end is found right here that we come to the table to commune with God. Not so that he'll do something in our life or show up or do anything other. We just come to be with him. And even the imagery of this table, of bread and wine, is a foreshadowing of that eternal table that we're invited to share with him. So as the band comes to lead us in a time of singing, reflecting, I want to I invite you to sing. I want to invite you to enjoy God's presence, to come to the table, to go, to receive prayer, to be here with him because he is what our hearts long for. Will you stand with me? We'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. We're thankful for the gift of your Holy Spirit who constantly draws our eyes to Jesus. And we're praying that this morning that the work of your gospel would go deep within us as a community. We don't want to fall into these traps of empty religion, of legalism, of boring faith and life. Jesus, you have promised life and life abundantly, and you're offering it to us in so many ways. 
Lord, save us from the trap of your Israelites and the sin of unbelief. Give us the faith this morning to join the party, to acknowledge your presence, to confess our sins, and to celebrate the grace that you have given us in your Son. And I pray that we, as Antioch Church, would be transformed more and more into a community that plays well, sings loud, has fun, rejoices, eats and drinks and celebrates in a way that reflects your goodness and grace and generosity and beauty to the city around us. We want this life, Lord. We pray that you would give us the faith. And so we thank you for your presence here with us now, that you are here as we've gathered as your people. I pray that you would help us pay attention to your presence, to know that you are with us and you are speaking. You are communicating your love and your acceptance and your tenderness towards us. Lord, give us the faith to receive it. I pray that we would become a community that even in the midst of a world full of pain and injustice would engage that world with the joy of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.